Coming up on today's show, Federal Minister of Tourism and Associate Minister of Finance Randy Bossino will join us to talk about the federal liberal budget. Melissa Cowett, a conservative strategist, will join us to talk about what's going on with the UCP party in Alberta. The leadership review, of course, now underway. And a group of doctors makes recommendations to the Alberta government on how to handle the opioid crisis. We'll talk with Dr. Stan Houston. Uh, Talking federal budget was delivered last Thursday. Um, I think the overarching response to it was kind of, Okay. Like, I don't think there was anything. Lots of times a budget will leap out at you and there's something that really gets people charged up one way or the other. I mean, there are things that people are picking apart with this budget, of course, but um, I don't want to say ho-hum, but I don't think it was as earth-shattering as other budgets that I've covered. Let's put it that way. Um, to get some details and uh, ask some questions about it, we are joined now by um, Randy Boissonneau. Randy, of course, uh, MP from Edmonton, also the Minister of Tourism and Associate Minister of Finance. Uh, Minister Boissonneau, thank you for joining us. Always appreciate your time. Thanks, Jay. Great to be here. Um, let's just dive right into it. I know we don't have a lot of time. I think sure. the big issue for many Canadians right now, just getting through day-to-day life, is inflation. I mean, life is more and more expensive each and every day. And, um, you know, a lot of the critics saying there really was nothing in this budget to help Canadians deal with the soaring cost of being a Canadian right now. Well, it's a, it's a great point, Shay. And let me say that... Uh, when you said when you said ho hum, I might reframe that as going back to basics. Like we invested, particularly in Alberta during the pandemic, nine out of ten dollars that was used to get Canadians and Albertans through the um, pandemic came from the federal government. And I mean, I'll be straight up with you and your listeners: we invested half a trillion dollars in the lives of Canadians so that we could get through the pandemic. And we invested in businesses, we invested in cities and communities and people in provinces so that we could actually get to this economic recovery now. And I'm going to get to the inflation question in a minute, but let me just share with you a fundamental or two. We lost 3 million jobs during the pandemic, mm-hmm. and now we've got 3.45 million jobs back, 6.7% growth, and the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7. So when it comes to inflation, I think what we all need to just pause and reflect on is uh, the government of Canada is like, we don't, we don't control, we don't drive inflation. There's three things that are underpinning the inflation pressures right now. One is energy prices, which you know also benefits Alberta and Canada from the uh, royalty side of things. The illegal war and the tragic war in Ukraine right now is driving up energy prices. So that's an upward uh, pressure on inflation. We also have supply chains that are still snarled post-COVID. And as long as China keeps their zero COVID policy in place, that's going to continue to be the case. And um, people bought a lot of goods during the pandemic because we couldn't go out and do things. We couldn't, you know, access the service economy. So that also put a lot of pressure on inflation. So what are we doing to help Canadians with affordability? All of our programs, like the Canada Child Benefit, which is saving the average, uh, which, which puts about, you know, what puts thousands of dollars into Calgarians, into Albertan families' pockets every month, that's indexed to inflation. So is our old age pension. So is the Canada Worker Benefit. And so that's one thing. The other thing is the child care program that we put in place over the last year. That's saving the average Albertan family $5,600. And we just put in this budget a one-time payment to families struggling with housing mm-hmm. of $500. But we can certainly talk about our housing measures because there's a lot of money in this budget to deal with the supply side of the housing issue. You mentioned the spending and the inflation, and I know there's some concern out there, you know, from our, our finance minister in this province, and I spoke with an economist uh, from a national bank last week saying, you know, the government promised to work hand-in-hand with the Bank of Canada on tackling inflation and getting it back down to a, a manageable level, um, and that didn't happen in this budget, according to the analysts. I mean, this is Travis Taves, the Alberta finance minister. Hi, 
spending and borrowing governments actually contribute to an inflationary environment. And so I, I would really want to see, you know, fiscal prudence in future federal budgets. I, I have a concern with, with the you know, kind of Trudeau-Singh alliance, if, if I can put it that way. You know, and, and Minister, I mean, that was echoed by economists that I spoke to last week saying, you know, that's, this spending, um, certainly you, know, you mentioned the debt-to-GDP ratio, and I know that's the benchmark, but we know interest rates are going up, spending is going up, it's a recipe for trouble. Well, if you take a look at the um, the projections in this budget, Shay, we also, uh, we were up like 300 and some uh, billion dollars investing in Canadians during the pandemic, over 100 billion last year. This one's at uh, 58, going down to no more than 8 billion by 26, 27 as a deficit. That's lower than the first budget we put in place in uh, in 2016. And so we're going to continue to grow the economy. I think the other thing that's important for people to know is the size of the Canadian economy is two and a half trillion dollars as of last, you know, quarter four last year. And that's what we predicted the size of the economy to be in the 2018 budget. So the economy is growing. We're going to welcome 1.3, 1.4 new million more Canadians to the country in the next three years. Um, because you probably have heard this from business that we've got a labor shortage, right? Yes. We have 5.3% unemployment right now. That's the lowest unemployment since I was six years old. 1976, we haven't had unemployment that low. So we've got to bring people in. We've got to skill them up. We've got to recognize their credentials. Like in the tourism sector, I got some inns and groups right in the mountain parks that can't open fully because they don't have enough people. So, But you can't have more people unless you have more homes. So that's why we're putting the money in to double the housing supply, to make sure that people can have a home so they can have a job. And then the green investments are also going to be good for Alberta because it's going to position us to prove to people what some think we can't do, which is literally get to the greenest barrel of oil and sell that to the world. And with all of the energy security stuff that's going on because of Russia right now and Mm -hmm. the invasion of Ukraine, there's a lot that we are putting in this budget. And you might have heard the Minister of Finance say this. This is the first chapter in a four-chapter book. Um, Minister, I know we've only got a minute or two left. I'd like to get into both those topics. I'll pick the housing one because you mentioned that earlier. Uh, $10 billion trying to increase supply. Basically, that's the remedy for the situation that we face, according to the government, increasing supply. How do we do that? I mean, the construction industry is running flat out. We have almost half a million homes under construction right now. As you say, we have a labor shortage. It's not like we can just build more homes. Who's going to build them? I mean, it's a massive issue. How do you just say, okay, we're going to build more homes and throw money at it? So we work with municipalities to cut the red tape. I know there, like in Edmonton right now, there's five projects coming out of the ground. They're going to help people who have been, uh, you know, living on the street are going to be able to call those uh, places home. And those builds from announcement to people moving in are less than 15 months. So that rapid housing program is working. It's working in Calgary. It's working in Edmonton. It's working in other municipalities. The other thing we're going to do is help people to get their first home. There's um, a new thing called the Tax-Free First Home Savings Account. It's like a, an RSP and a TFSA that you can put $8,000 away every year for five years. And at the end of it, you've got forty grand that you can use to put the, as a down payment to your house. So we're going on the supply side, and we're also going on the affordability side because Everybody needs a, you know, a place to call home so that they can get to work and grow the economy. Uh, Minister, I know you're out of time. I do appreciate you giving us a few minutes this morning. We'll do this again soon. Moving uh, a little closer to home, talking about the Alberta UCP party and what's going on with them. And um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where we're going to go. But we're going to chat now with Melissa Cowett, who is a conservative strategist, consultant, and writer. Always a great voice of insight on these issues. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Shay. Let's just start with the intention here of this leadership review. As far as I understand it, the goal is to get rid of the division, to get rid of the infighting, and get everybody united behind the premier. Would you say that's fair? That's the point of this? That is the intent, yes, I believe so. But it appears to me as if the exact opposite is happening, and it gets worse day after day after day. Do you see the same thing happening? I do, and I think that that is probably surprising to some people. I think it it might be um, have been surprising to the premier in the last few months because I don't know that he necessarily appreciated the extent of um, the division that existed within the party because he and the government have been obviously really focused on COVID and dealing with the sort of issues of the day. You know, they say like letting the urgent um, get in the way of the important. I think that's kind of what happened over the past couple of years. The UCP is a really new party. Um, and like any new family, it takes work and dedication and focus and um, and continued sustained effort to like really make that family function well. And that hasn't been possible. We've talked about this in the past, mm-hmm. over the past couple of years. And so now um, people are sort of standing, realizing all of the different divisions that have not been repaired over the past couple of years and wondering how to to move past them. Um, Okay, so let's talk about what happened this weekend. The Premier giving his speech to the the SGM. Um, The rhetoric was much more heated. Uh, It was, I mean, he was talking about toxic ideology with the NDP. He brought up critical race. I mean, you name it. He was going all in socialism and all the rest. And, And I think, you know, he was focused on that with the UCP faithful and, and, and they loved it. Um, but it seems to me like he was really, it was a different premier than we've heard in other speeches, much more focused on the NDP. Um, is that sort of the strategy over the next month or so, or however long the ballots are out there to try and turn the attention on our common enemy rather than on me? I think so. And I think getting, UCP supporters to think of the choice as not being, hey, is there a better option within our conservative movement to lead the party right now? And getting them to think about what a risk that would be in terms of the provincial election happening next year. I think that that strategy probably bodes a lot better for the premier now that the vote has opened up, not just to registrants that would have been there in Red Deer this past weekend, around 15,000 people, but to the entire party membership, which is about 60,000 people. And many people believe that the more motivated part of the party right now, the people that were signed up to go to Red Deer, that was weighted heavily against Kenny. When you open it up to the whole membership, the 60,000 people, there's a lot more, and I know sometimes maybe people think it's hard to believe seeing what we see in the media, but there's a lot more sort of very mainstream, pragmatic members of the party who aren't really looking to be more divisive and more on the right, like some of the the strong detractors to the premier have been. And so I think that that messaging lands with people who are not really that concerned. I mean, let's face it, Shay, you and I love, you know, being in politics and paying attention to it. Most people are not, you know, that involved, right? So it's it's trying to appeal to those people and and be a reasonable voice um, uh, and put the ballot question 
being not for for this year on the leadership review, but what are we going to be dealing with next year against against Notley? Yeah, exactly, because that's going to be the next step if he manages to stay on. Um, and, and, and that's the question, Melissa. No matter what happens when the ballots are counted or the vote is revealed on May 18th, um, we've already got Brian Jean and I think other people. I mean, we've had constituency associations talking about their concerns with the rules and the way this is being done. But Jean flat out said, if it is fair, Kenny will no longer be premier. Will this decision or this announcement, whatever happens on the 18th, will it be accepted? Does it have a chance or is it already being rejected? No matter what happens, will one side or the other be saying it wasn't fair, it doesn't count, it doesn't mean anything? Well, I think actually Brian Jean in those comments undermines the process. You know, Brian Jean is in a position of influence. He's in a position of power. He was sworn in last week as an MLA. Um, Preempting the vote by saying those things is going to obviously sow doubt in people's minds. And that's no doubt his intention. I, I don't think that Brian Jean wants the review to be a fair review necessarily. I think he thinks that the re- the fair result is the one that he wants, and, and that's not really the definition of fairness. Look, I think that in any leadership race, in any um, in any kind of party matter like this, there has this is not new. There's always going to be criticisms of how the process works. That that happens in every single party and every single leadership review. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. I think that the responsible thing to do is to, for both Kenny and Jean and any others, is to accept the results um, on the 18th. They've got auditors that are coming in. They um, are going to have an extremely transparent process with scrutineers and and UCP volunteers. I, I think there was even some talk of, um, you know, making the, the the count even more public. So I think that people who are saying that the results will be the results in the count itself will not be fair are doing a real disservice to the party, and they're not really looking out for what's best for the party. They're looking out for what's best for themselves, and um, I don't think that's what we should be what we should be doing in this situation. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Melissa, and I think it, it, when that kind of rhetoric, that kind of talk extends beyond just the internal party vote that's happening. When you start to talk about you know, before the votes are even counted, whether or not it was fair or not. It's just a path that we don't want to go down in this country. So um, regardless, whatever happens, um, is the UCP in a better position May 19th than they are today or have been for the past two years? Do you think they're going to get what they want out of this review as they head into, you know, I mean, it's going to be a dogfight in this next election. I think, you know, the NDP still doing quite well in some areas, but not as well as they were before. It was the premier, apparently, according to the polling, that has really been dragging down UCP numbers. But as far as parties go, uh, UCP and NDP are fairly close. Do you think, regardless with what happens, whether Kenny's there or not, um, they're in a better position on May 19th than they are today? I don't think that they're in a better position politically than they are today. They'll be in a better position sort of procedurally and according to bylaws because they've checked the box of something that they have to do. But, you know, we don't live life just based on like the black and white. There's a lot of gray and there's a lot of nuance. And I think that's the area that the premier needs to play in. 
um, post-review if he's successful, which I believe he will be. There, there needs to be there needs to be real work done at the party level to to repair the divisions and to have a bit of a sort of um, reckoning in terms of what's actually possible within the UCP and what are the bounds of what um, the party is going to allow. There, there might need to be some serious discussions that that outline, look, like we are a big tent party. We welcome all different perspectives, but there are boundaries. You know, I'm always very surprised by, I would identify myself as somebody within the party who's more sort of like center, a little bit more mainstream. I don't have hard right values. Mm -hmm. And I'm always so surprised by um, the degree to which people on the far right expect from the rest of party members. You know, people like me are are fully accepting and and welcoming of people who have different views. And I understand that we're going to govern in a pragmatic way. I think there needs to be more of that, more of a team mentality, more of a community mentality in terms of what is the best pathway to form government so that we can continue to have the most important conservative values to our movement reflected in government. Um, But we're not sort of constantly mired in internal infighting. So... To that point, Melissa, this is what the Premier said this weekend, talking about what happens after this if he is still leader. And I expect all of our MLAs to do the same. Um, if, if we have members after the leadership vote who refuse to accept the Democratic decision, then um, they may need to find a different political home. This is new. Uh, Kenny um, has really tried to walk the line. And like you say, there are uh, there is a diversity of viewpoints and voices within the conservative movement anywhere in this country. We know that. And I think he's tried to be all things to all people to his own detriment. If he's still leader, it sounds to me um, that 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 ends. It, it's fall in line or go somewhere else. Is that sort of where you think he might have gotten to with all of this? I think so. And if that is what he means and he does fall through on that, I'm really proud of that because I think that that is really leadership. Um, And I think that that um, makes people who may be uncomfortable with the way the party was drifting a bit more comfortable. And, And by the way, like if you don't want to support the leader of a political party, don't sit in that caucus. I've said this before with you, Shay, like Mm -hmm. I think it's totally reasonable if your sole sort of mission after the leadership review is completed is to destroy the party from the inside, then why, why do you even want to be a part of it? it? It holds us back and it prevents us from really building as a party. I'm not suggesting that the party is perfect. And, and I know that we have things that we need to improve upon, but if you're not even willing to sort of be at the table to, to contribute to that work, then I, I, I agree with the premier in that sense, like find another home, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, if you're talking about unity, someone has to be leading and everybody else has to be following along. That's sort of the way that it works. Um, Melissa, always great insight. Really appreciate your time. We'll talk as this gets closer. And then of course, afterwards as well. Absolutely. Thanks, Shay. You bet. Thanks very much. That is Melissa Cowett, who is a conservative strategist, a consultant and writer, uh, a great voice on what's going on in conservative politics, both in our province and across the country. Talking now about the opioid epidemic. Uh, we've talked about this many times, and um, I think we've got, done a pretty good job of uh, trying to you know, bring together the kind of voices that sort of deal with this every day, the, what you could call experts, the people who actually are working on the problem, um, because the problem 
is not getting any better. If you take a look at the situation, in fact, 2021, more deaths reported in Alberta than ever before. So uh, we've had a lot of talk about we're doing this, we're doing that. This needs to be done. That needs to be done. We simply cannot get a handle on this situation, which is frustrating to a great many people. And earlier this week, or last week, I guess, um, a group of Alberta physicians got together um, and put out a, a, a list of recommendations, things that, you know, doctors, Medical professionals say, hey, this is what we need to be doing. And those are the kind of voices we've tried to amplify here on the program. So joining us now to talk about that, we have Dr. Stan Houston, who is part of the Edmonton Zone Medical Association and part of this group that made the recommendations. Dr. Houston, um, thank you for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Morning, Shay. Well, I appreciate your interest uh, in this important community topic. Yeah, you know, Doc, to be honest with you, I'm very, very interested and have been for a very, very long time for a variety of reasons, but I I just get more and more frustrated because, you know, and your report speaks to exactly what we've had so many guests on the air saying, you know what, you can't look at any one thing. Uh, There is no silver bullet to deal with this. It's a several different things need to happen in unison, and that's what your report sort of comes out and says, right? There's, There's no silver bullet here, Doc. That's exactly right. We don't have, uh, since we don't have a silver bullet, uh, we need to make the uh, best use of the tools we've got, and we need to be using them all together. Um, when we talk about that, though, um, what would they be? What would those pillars be when we talk about this full-spectrum approach? What are they in your mind that we need to do? So the, the three key uh, issues, and there are a lot of details that accompany each of them, but the three key issues were safe consumption sites, so uh, places where uh, people can, who use uh, drugs can, can use them safely, uh, basically, to prevent uh, overdose and also to reduce the risk of infection, which is kind of where I got involved in the first place. Uh, the, the second issue was uh, safe supply. So the main uh, factor that has changed the situation in the, in, the, in the last couple of years, you know, along with COVID and other things, but the main factor has been the um, uh, arrival of these highly potent and highly unpredictable uh, drugs on the, on the street scene. So uh, people don't know what they're getting. They don't know the drug and they don't know the concentration. Uh, and that's been uh, the, the, the dominant factor. And so um, replacing uh, that unpredictable toxic product with a, a safer supplies, yeah. uh, prescribed supplies of known uh, quality and quantity. And the last uh, point was a, a decriminalization of uh, possession of uh, drugs uh, because um, criminalization hasn't worked and has had uh, a wide range of negative effects. Um, okay, let's get into those a little bit. Uh, first of all, our province um, focuses on recovery. That's the message that we always hear from the government of Alberta. And you know what? Adding beds and increasing the amount of recovery um, services that are available in Alberta. I'll be the first to tell you that's fabulous. That's fantastic. Way to go. Big round of applause. But that can't be the only thing, right? I mean, if you focus on any one of these without bringing in the whole fulsome response, it won't work, correct? I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, it's just, I mean, and and you can use all the cliches about, you know, 
recovery beds are no good for people who aren't alive anymore and all those sorts of things. Now, let me give you the province's response as I know you've heard it. Um, talking about safe supply, um, the province says there is no evidence to support the use of safe supply. Uh, they say, in fact, there's a mountain of evidence that shows more opioids in the community actually means more harm the community suffers. Have you seen that mountain of evidence? Uh, well, short answer is no. I mean, I, obviously, there's a very legitimate concern there. So as I uh, alluded to earlier, the devil would be very much in the details of how this would be how this would be uh, rolled out to prevent unintended consequences. Uh, but we we already know yeah. what the consequence of the community being flooded with uh, 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 illegal uh, fentanyl uh, uh, products. So uh, we need to figure out ways of re- replacing those products. And Doc, we already have... I mean, a foundation, and it's a very, very flawed program in many ways, I understand, with methadone and other agonist treatments. Um, it's not like we don't have a way of avoiding diversion and, and all the rest of that stuff. We've, we've done this before. Right. Just build on it. The other one. Yeah, okay. yeah. and so I should say there is um, a- a evidence rapidly emerging from other centers, in, particularly in, in, in Canada, on... Uh, uh, the delivery and the strategies for safe supply. So um, we're we're rapidly getting more experience on on how to do this and what the results are. Um, the other one, the government says uh, they don't believe in criminalizing a healthcare issue. They agree with you that far, but they say you can't just take away the penalties and expect things will go better and the problem will just go away. So decriminalization, um, they say, doesn't work. I know there's a lot of talk in uh, many different cities across the country about this. Um, is there evidence showing that it is good or it is bad? Uh, well, yes, uh, there is. Uh, um, cr- criminalizing possession uh, has just doesn't solve any any problems and creates a, a, a long list of new problems. It clogs up our courts. It gets uh, pe- gives people criminal records and prevents them uh, uh, getting uh, reengaging back uh, into society. And it costs a ton of money. Um, and as I say, is do- doesn't work. Um, so, uh, and there are there, for example, there's. Uh, Portugal, for example, has a number of years ago largely decriminalized uh, possession, and they've uh, seen major improvement in addiction and transmission of uh, uh, viral infections like HIV and uh, hepatitis C Mm -hmm. and the social and legal harms that uh, accompany criminalization. So, once again, the devil would be in the details about exactly uh, definitions and and how this is how this is a, a implemented. But um, uh, even even um, uh, I, I believe that the National Organization of Police Chiefs has recognized that uh, just locking up all these people from 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 the street has is not the way to go. Um, last one. 
uh, because it's an important one and it's also part of your report, is is this issue around data, which has been an ongoing concern in Alberta for some time in terms of how opioid overdoses are reported, how often they're reported, how detailed that report is. What would you like to see in terms of data and why is it so important? Uh, well, uh to respond effectively to just about any problem, you need to know what you're dealing with. And this, of course, is a rapidly evolving problem. So, uh, and, and, it's, uh, and it's very variable, you know, geographically in different populations mm-hmm. and in different areas, including rural areas, which I, which I think is often overlooked in uh, Alberta. So if uh, uh, we knew better uh, what was happening and, and where the, exactly the problems were, more granular local uh, detail than um, uh, the re- response, which might be in, including uh, op- um, overdose prevention sites, which the government has talked about, where should they be? Um, uh, could, could, be could be much more effective. They have this information, um, it's kind of baffling why um, why it's not made more available, and it needs to be in a in a in a timely manner because, as I say, this this whole thing is um, evolving pretty fast. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and people are dying each and every single day. Uh, Doctor Houston, so much uh, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining okay. us. Thank you, Shay. That is Dr. Stan Houston, who is with the Edmonton Zone Medical Association and part of that group that came forward and said, listen, here's our recommendation. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.